This podcast is brought to you by Nerd Wallet. Are you paying for your me time with just any credit card in your wallet? While you shouldn't stop treating yourself, you should start paying with a credit card that has perks. Nerd Wallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending. Some even offering 10 times points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? A free flight? Room upgrades? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and term supply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Hi, everyone. I'm Katie Couric, and this is Next Question. Best-selling author Michael Lewis has a real knack for extracting page-turning drama out of otherwise mundane and complicated subjects, like the housing bubble, bond sales, and baseball stats. Several of those nonfiction books have been turned into award-winning celebrity-packed films, like The Big Short. Mortgage-backed securities, subprime loans, tranches. It's pretty confusing, right? Does it make you feel bored or stupid? Well, it's supposed to. And Moneyball. Jombie's on base percentage was 477. Damon's on base, 324. And Almeida's was 291. Add that up and you get... 1092. Divided by three. It's 364. That's what we're looking for. Three ball players, three ball players whose average OBP is 364. Now Michael Lewis is taking a crack at our pandemic reality, which is still unfolding. His new book is called The Premonition, A Pandemic Story. Through the lens of three really remarkable scientists, Michael tries to unravel the government's gross mismanagement of the COVID response that's led to nearly 600,000 deaths, which is among the world's worst outcomes. You'll get to hear from one of the main characters in the book later in this episode. But for now, let's start with Michael Lewis. So, Michael Lewis, first of all, so great to have you again on the podcast. And how crazy is it that your last book, The Fifth Risk, was all about, quote, what happens when the people in charge of managing risks have no interest in them? And boom, the pandemic hits, which basically proves your thesis. You, you know, I don't want to gloat about this. It's not, <laughs> it's, not an attra- it's not an attractive way to go through life. But 
I did. The, the point of the fifth risk was you, you don't know what's going to happen, right? We have this instrument called the government that is uniquely suited to deal with certain kinds of problems, and there's no other instrument to deal with them. And pandemic disease is one of them. And the fact that kind of like then the Trump people rolled in and didn't pay much attention to the government and said it was basically the problem and didn't get the transition briefings and all that. I did have this terror, like, what's going to happen? How's it going to kill me? And, and I didn't have I didn't have any specific sense of like what was going to happen next. But I thought one of these risks is going to become reality. And then you're going to see what happens when you when you just abdicate the responsibility. So that's what got me interested in the in writing in the book in the first place was just like, well, it happened. What happens next? You might be the only writer, author, reporter, Michael, who doesn't point a finger squarely in Trump's direction. And in fact, one of the people you profile in your book says basically Trump is a comorbidity of a larger disease. Can you explain what he meant by that? Yeah. All of the characters in the book, the three main characters, had been engaged pretty intensely with the question of what happens if a pathogen lands in America and it starts to spread well before Trump. And they had all seen that the tools we had to deal with were inadequate. They had all seen that particularly the CDC was not really up to controlling disease. It was more like more like an academic institution. And that they could all see that we didn't have a system of public health. Like it just didn't exist. What we have is these people who are in this extraordinary role of being local public health officers and that they they're kind of tasked with battlefield command on the ground, but they aren't resourced. They've been starved of resources for a generation. And the focus oddly had not been for a long time on like pandemics. It had, it had been on bioterrorism. If it, it had been on other things. So these people could see that all right, it doesn't matter who's president. We, we have a problem. Like we have a problem that we don't have the, 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 the tool to deal with this. So when they would not say that Trump helped, they would say something like, we once had this machine that worked pretty well. We allowed it to rust and decay, and it was still sort of creaking down the highway. And then came a president who took a sledgehammer to it. But it was, it was, the machine was not, it was not in good shape when he was elected. So, so they, they weren't, they think, they think of him as more a symptom than cause. It's sort of like the same spirit that elected him led to the corrosion of the machine in the first place. But you also write that George W. Bush actually set things in motion for pandemic preparedness after reading The Great Influenza by John M. Barry, and that was about the 1918 pandemic. Uh, and he read it when he was on vacation, and he decided something needs to be done about this. So does George W. Bush deserve a little more credit than he is getting in terms of at least seeing that this was a potential threat to the country and the world? He deserves huge credit. I mean, I, I'm a little surprised to find myself saying that, but he deserves huge credit. And he he was freaked out in a freaked out state of mind when he read it, because not only did he have 9-11 in the rearview mirror, but he had Katrina basically on his desk. And, and it was like, what else could go wrong? And he reads this book about 1918. He turns to someone in the White House and he says, what's our pandemic plan? And the person says, we don't we don't have one. And it was it was a really interesting case of how fast the government can move when the president's pissed off. It was, you know, a couple of weeks from that moment to him using a rapidly sketched out plan by a doctor who was in the White House named Rajiv Vankaya. You know, just a few pages. 
to ask for $7 billion from Congress to go about planning for a pandemic. And you can trace back to that moment, not only my main couple of my main characters, but the whole plan to have a vaccine that, that was not based on using chicken eggs. I mean, the, the reason we have vaccines so fast now is stuff they did back then. So that was an example. That's sort of a shiny, bright spot, like an example of the government taking on a problem, figuring out how to deal with it. The problem is the strategy they cooked up for how to limit death and disease before the vaccine arrives, which is wholly original. All the social distancing that, that came out of their plan. It was swallowed and understood hook, line and sinker by four countries who the CDC explained it to. And we never really got our minds around it. We were never prepared to do the things that you needed to do to contain a virus. Well, if George W. Bush deserves credit, conversely, does Barack Obama deserve some of the blame for letting this apparatus rust, as you said, to a point where it had been corroded so significantly that Trump just had to put a sledgehammer to it and destroy it? No, it's more complicated than that. So that if you'd ask those guys in the Bush White House, who, who, one of them stayed on into the Obama White House and brought his fellows back to help deal with the pandemic that didn't happen, the 2009 swine flu pandemic, they would say it was a, a decade long anyway process to implementing this plan. And that they'd say a couple of things. They'd say, one, Obama made the same mistake every other president made in the very beginning, but then corrected. And the mistake was to kind of shove to one side pandemic risk, meaning it wasn't it wasn't immediately on the National Security Council as a thing that you know, responsibility. Bush had sort of elevated it for about months. Obama kind of put it to one side, but then brought it back quickly. And the Obama administration actually did a really good job of trying to institutionalize pandemic response in the White House. The Trump administration got rid of that. And uh, and that that was a problem. The other problem, I think, and is it's bigger than Obama. It, it's generational. It's sort of like a, if it's a sin, I don't think of it as a sin. It's like a sin of omission in the case of that administration is that there is this argument that the only way we're going to deal with these problems really well is, is pretty serious government reform. And it means actually reforming institutions like the CDC. I think the characters in the Bush administration who cooked up our pandemic plan made one big mistake. They overestimated the ability of the CDC to execute it. So they, they thought we embedded in the CDC and we're done. It's good. The CDC will run this thing like a like a war general. And they overestimated the kind of the willingness, the bravery, the capacities of the CDC, because all along the CDC had been becoming for, you know, it's been on a steady drift for decades to becoming this kind of highly politicized academic institution. You know, that was so shocking to me. I mean, the CDC, as you point out in your book, is so dysfunctional. And I guess the downward slide began in the late 70s. I mean, basically, what happened to the CDC? It lost its independence. As you say, it became politicized. And the White House, in essence, had too much control over it. And it became less and less and less independent. Is that a fair yeah, uh, it's synopsis. A, yeah, it's a very curious thing, the relationship between the White House and the CDC. But you go, what happened was there was a there was a mistake the CDC made back way back in the 70s when it took charge of what looked like a deadly virus coming to America. It looked like there was going to be a swine flu outbreak. There had been one, 
a little one in New Jersey in the spring. They advocated rushing to vaccinate all Americans. Some people died, not many, but a handful of people died from the vaccine and then they stopped vaccinating people and the, and the pandemic never happened. After that, the CDC director ceases to be a career official who's got the protection of a permanent pu- a public servant who the president just can't fire and who has also who runs the place for like a decade or more and has a very long term view of the institution. It's changed to a presidential appointee, to a political appointee, and which means that almost implicitly that the guy, whoever, whoever's running the place is going to be running it for 18 months or two years. They're going to be on a much shorter leash with the White House. They're going to be of the political party of the president, most likely. They're going to be. It's and they're going not going to take the long view. They're going to be a renter instead of a homeowner, right? They're going to be thinking of like just avoid whatever the problems, catastrophes of the next 18 months or two years are rather than build this institution for the moment it's going to be most needed, which is in probably in the distant future. To me, the story was so rich because this isn't just the CDC. This has happened to a lot of institutions in Washington. We have 4,000 and something presidential political appointees who come in and purport to run these places. And it's just impossible. If you're, if what you are is an 18-month visitor to some vast institution, how are you going to lead that place? I mean, you really aren't going to lead that place. You're going to be better or worse than the person who came before you. But no company would do this, right? You would never say, I got to change your CEO every 18 months. And they've got to be of a particular p- political affiliation. It, Were you no. shocked by that? Were you oh. shocked? By, I mean, you wouldn't have been shocked but because of the fifth risk. But when it came to the CDC, was that shocking to you? There was a combination of shock and mystery. Because to me, the CDC had this you know, golden reputation. It was one of those bright spots in the government, I would have thought. It earned that reputation, but it earned it like a long time ago, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s. And then, it, then things start to it's get murkier. So yes, I was shocked by their behavior in the pandemic. It's incredible that they're like preventing people from being tested for COVID who come back from Wuhan because their test doesn't work or because they don't want to find it because if they find it, they have a problem with Trump because Trump doesn't want to find it. That's to that. It shocked me that they issued all this guidance that was wrong. All that stuff was shocking, but there was this mystery attached to the shock. How did it happen? Like, how did this place, it's not filled with evil people. It's filled with probably really good people who are just in a bad system. Like, how did it get so systematically wrong? That was the thing that was the mystery to me. And for my characters, you know, Charity Dean, who's the main character of the book, who's this local, this dynamic local public health officer who's fighting disease, you know, in hand to hand combat before COVID, finds that the CDC so interferes with her ability to stop people from getting sick and dying that she has to ban them from her investigations. I, I mean, she, she knew what was going to happen if they were, when there was a pandemic. It shocked me that it had gotten that bad, that, that it had gotten it gotten so incapable of doing the thing it was supposed to do. I'm thinking about the Hippocratic Oath, you know, first do no harm. And uh, it sounds like they were actually proactively harming, not just they weren't just inefficient and ineffectual. They were actually hindering science, which is crazy. Well, they're hindering response, right? In their minds, probably rightly, they were doing science. Like you wait till all the data is in before you allow any decisions to be made. You make sure you have complete certainty so you don't make any mistakes. You focus on like the, you know, writing the paper rather than fighting the disease. And the problem with disease war, with with this kind of combat is 
it's battlefield. You make you have to make decisions in conditions of uncertainty because by the time you have certainty, it's too late. By the time you have certainty, you don't have four cases of COVID in America. You have 50,000. Up next, one of the real-life doctors featured in Michael's book, a member of a secret group of scientists trying to save the country. That's right after this. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Let's talk about the Wolverines. So you find these three incredible, badass scientists. First of all, how did you find them? How did you track them down? And what was your process, Michael? Um, the three main characters came to me in three different ways. So the fifth risk had a jungle guy named Max Steyer, who runs something called the Partnership for Public Service. Who it's seeking to kind of fix government. He said to me early on, you got to talk to my uncle who was the, a former U.S. Navy secretary, who said to me, if you're going to write anything about this, you need to meet the Wolverines. And I said, who the hell are the Wolverines? And he said, basically, they're kind of this secret group of doctors who meet whenever there's like a, a fear of disease, pandemic kind of problems. And they go back and they're kind of the people who are the responsible for the, the invention of pandemic planning. So I was moving through the world last March and the Wolverines say, you got to meet this woman named Charity Dean, who's number two in the health department of California. If anybody's going to save us, it's her. And another character I wrote about in The Fifth Risk, who was Obama's chief data scientist named DJ Patel, called me up and said, I've just come from trying to help the state of California, and you've got to meet this woman named Charity Dean. And so I wrote a note finally to the 
governor of California, to the government of California, said, I want to meet this woman named Charity Dean. And they said, no, you can't. She doesn't want to talk to you. So I, it took me about four weeks to get her private cell number. And she said, they're, they're lying. <laughs> and, and, and to figure out that, yeah, she's, she kind of unifies the story and she's the character I want to build the book around. And the Wolverine who ends up being the main character from the tribe is Carter Mesher. And he is this savant. But what was so interesting to me about him is at heart, what he was is a, a critical care doctor who, as he said, he has ADHD or ADD or something. He can't, like, can't focus unless he has a kind of life or death problem. And he discovered his calling in the ICU where people were living and dying based on his you know, decisions. And he, he had hyper-focus in the ICU. And he was just really gifted at that. And through kind of a series of accidents, he keeps being pulled up by the society, by a string, to deal with versions of like crises, life or death crises, but at the institutional level. First, he's asked to run a giant VA hospital that's in a total state of crisis because he's obviously really competent, they think. And he, he frames it as like, the patient is now my hospital. Then he gets pulled up to run a whole chain of hospitals and the patient is the my uh, is all these hospitals and I've got to prevent them from making the mistakes that end up causing us all this pro these problems. And kind of by accident, he's pulled into the Bush White House to figure out how to save the society from a pandemic. And he, he had this just incredible ability to come at a problem in a really weird way and think about a new kind of solution. And then... Joe DeRisi, who is this biochemist at UCSF, who is the most badass virus hunter on the planet. And he's sort of like, in a James Bond movie, he's Q. He creates all the gadgets you use to go kill the bad guys. I do identify with Q, but I'd like to put it towards infectious disease rather than, you know, hiding machine guns in cars. My name is Joseph DeRisi. I'm a professor in biochemistry and biophysics at the University of California, San Francisco. And I'm the co-president of the Chan Zuckerberg Biohub. I first met Michael Lewis in 2016. Five years ago, I published a book called Flash Boys. I was a big Michael Lewis fan, having read a number of his books. I think Flash Boys is probably one of my favorites. A money manager in San Francisco who liked the book wanted to go to dinner, and I said, sure. It turns out the reason he wants to go to dinner is to say, I have the character for your next book. His name is Joe DeRisi. I thought, all right, I'll go have a lunch with Joe DeRisi. I invited him over to the Chan Zuckerberg Biohub, which is a nonprofit research institute affiliated with UCSF, Stanford, and Berkeley. It was like sort of indifferent to whether I, he was a character in one of my books. He just like, oh, it's cool, I'll meet this author. Um, he was electric. I mean, electric. I kind of pitched this idea of, of talking about uh, infectious disease work and things like that. And he seemed mildly interested but, you know, not really. And I thought, God, I wish I knew something about science. I wish I didn't get a D in biology my sophomore year in high school, uh, because someone should write a book about this guy. I mean, he's unbelievable. He was like doing things like hunting down pandemics and snakes, like find, finding a virus that was wiping out parrots. He was, he was finding rare bugs that were killing people in mysterious ways. He was, and I just thought, yeah, I wanna know more about this. And I, but I didn't, I felt like I didn't have a reason to write about him until this happened. That was the last I saw of him until, you know, the pandemic hit. And then suddenly he got a lot more interested in infectious disease. And then I called him and he was turned out, sure enough, he's smack in the middle of it. 
The Chan Zuckerberg Biohub, as I mentioned, is a nonprofit research institute, a 501c3 affiliate with UCSF, Stanford, and Berkeley. And we're a research institute that is dedicated to sort of basic science and the study of infectious diseases in particular. And so, for example, we were working on a system for early detection of emerging pathogens worldwide, especially in low and middle income countries. Uh, and we were working on spinning up a number of these pathogen monitoring sites in numerous countries like Bangladesh and Cambodia and Nepal, Pakistan, and many other places with the idea that we needed a early warning radar, an early detection network that would help us know when something new is coming our way. So I was helping Cambodia get set up in January of 2020. On my trip back from Cambodia uh, through China, compared to when I came through China into Cambodia only about 10 days prior, there was a much heightened level of security and not the security of, you know, um, x-ray machines looking for, you know, things in luggage. It was security around people. So there were big, these big, you know, glass and acrylic boxes that you stood in and it monitored your fever. It was a temperature sensor with a video monitor and there was a lot of security personnel and everybody had to go in there and kind of stand one at a time. And it was, you know, a, a level, a heightened level that just wasn't there 10 days earlier. And that difference said to me, okay, <laughs> something's going on. It's probably a bigger deal than we thought. But did we have much more information than that? No, we didn't really know. All I could tell is that the, the feeling inside the airport, the security level, and the tenseness there, it was just something you could feel. February, the first cases really came in here. And then, you know, the, the thing that really became apparent to us was in early March, it became completely obvious that our testing capacity in the United States and the commercial providers in big labs were ill-suited to carry the load that was coming. There was a tidal wave coming and nobody had the higher ground. Everybody was going to be flooded. And when tests were being sent out to commercial providers, they weren't coming back for 10 or 14 days, which is unacceptable because the, the window is, you know, now you need to have an answer in less than 24 hours. These days, we want an answer in 15 minutes, not 24 hours. Uh, at that time, I would have been thrilled with 24 hours. And so, you know, at, at the Chan Zuckerberg Biohub, we have this ability to be nimble, to change what we're doing and turn on a dime. And we really felt that it was going to be necessary to get into the game. We're a bunch of molecular biologists. We study infectious disease. If we can't participate in this fight, what fight can we fight in? This goal of setting up a clinical lab as fast as we could, it really took everything that we had. We begged and borrowed every piece of equipment we could get across the research campus. And luckily here at UCSF, we have a tremendous workforce of incredibly trained PhDs in virology and molecular biology and infectious disease. And so I was able to draw on over 175 volunteers. They were, you know, that are all PhD level volunteers to show up and put their skills to use. Everybody wanted to get into the fight. And so they brought their skills, they brought their reagents, they brought their robots, they brought their time. We built a clinical testing lab, 
uh, starting on March 12th. And we had it up and running, returned our first clinical result on March 20th. So it took us eight days to set up the entire lab and get clinical testing for COVID down. And then we just rolled it out to essentially uh, all the counties in California. And so when we initially did outreach and sort of, hey, local counties, we know you're not getting your test back for seven or 10 days. We can do it way faster. And by the way, we'll do it for free. Uh, and we didn't really get that much of a response. And we didn't really understand why. And I think Priscilla put it really well, actually. She said, you know, a lot of departments of public health don't know how to ask for something because they've never been given anything. And it's true. When we worked with our, our um, local county department of health offices, you know, in different counties around the Bay Area, we found that uh, there was a great disparity in different um, public offices. Some had some decent resources. Others had almost nothing. And it's from years of neglect of our public health system, frankly. And I think the pandemic has taught us that we need to reinforce and rebuild those public health institutions so that this doesn't happen again. Uh, and um, I hope that this crisis spurs us to action so that does occur. Now, luckily, we were able to reach out to our, our public health directors across the state. We actually, Priscilla Chan actually had a conference call and she invited everybody onto the call from all the different counties and said, hey, what's not to like about free testing? And they got it. <laughs> they finally got it. It just took some talking to you. And then it took off. And of course, we did it, you know, more we did you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of tests until the state was able to bring up its own mass testing sort of systems and direct antigen testing also came online, uh, which also made things much faster and easier. And so once those came online, we were able to sort of ramp down the clinical testing, but simultaneously, we were always ramping up the sequencing. And of course, variants and sequencing only got super popular in around December, but we've been sequencing since April, 2020 not just for variants, but for using the data for actionable intervention at the public health level. And the way that works is this, we can sequence the positive samples and we can understand which genomes are related. Since the virus makes mistakes in itself as it copies itself and transmits from one person to the other, it creates basically a little breadcrumb trail in which you can track back which infections were related to who. When we were working with some of our public health officials in counties, uh, I remember um, one reporter asking the, the official, hey, if you could have anything today, right now, you know, what would it be, a shiny new testing machine, uh, um, you know, a mobile van? I mean, what, what, do we, what do you need right now? What could it be? And the Department of Health official said, information. That's more valuable than anything. Where is the virus coming in? Are there new introductions to my city? Or is there continuing forward spread among a certain community? Where can I cut the transmission chain short? What is my next action that's going to save lives? And that's how we can put genomic epidemiology to work. It's been a wild roller coaster ride. It's been very tense and uh, very exciting, but also stressful at the same time. I learned lessons about uh, how, uh, how our public health system works. I learned lessons about disease transmission that I didn't fully appreciate and the potential uh, for pandemic spread in asymptomatic individuals. 
Um, the basic biology of this virus will be studying for decades to come. We still don't fundamentally understand the biology of that. It has been wonderful to see the miracle of the mRNA vaccines from both Pfizer and Moderna in particular. Those have been incredible innovations that I was initially skeptical of, but it has done really well. And uh, I think we can all see the light at the end of the tunnel now. So, you know, the other thing that I learned is that in these situations, there's no points for hesitation. You have to act and act quickly. And sometimes it's not going to be the right move. But the inaction, the waiting for more data is potentially more damaging over the long run than not doing something. We're going to take a short break, but when we come back, Michael Lewis on how to handle what some experts are calling the age of pandemics. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Talk about the notion, Michael, of premonition, the fact that these folks have this essential trait that enabled them to sense that something catastrophic was was on the horizon and to act on the impulse. I mean, what did these three people have in common? What did you learn from them? Well, all three of them, once you're living in the world of you know, biochemical events, once you're, once you're spending a lot of time thinking about how various viruses mutate and might change, and how broken our relationship with nature is so that things are leaping from animals to people more often. When you're really looking at that close, it really isn't a matter of if, but when, right? That, you, that, that they, they became, all of them in their different ways and for different reasons, became convinced that the risk of pandemic was higher than, say, what I thought it was. But the whole premonition notion is, is an interesting one because Carter Mesher was, among his gifts, 
was his ability to figure out very, very quickly what's happening in the beginning of a pandemic. And so he, it's January 20th. He has a, a very accurate read on the lethality and transmissibility of the virus in Wuhan. And he knows it's coming here. So if he had been in charge, as there's every possibility he would have been in charge, just wasn't, um, we would have started acting, you know, two months before we did. And he would tell you, you've got to get it, you've got to have this sort of like clairvoyance because by the time you see the virus, you know, in action, by the time you see the first death, you're looking at the equivalent of starlight. You're looking at something, an infection that took place maybe five weeks ago. And in those five weeks, that virus has multiplied exponentially. So if you wait till the death, you've got so many cases in your community, you can't, you can't manage it. You need to anticipate it. Charity is the one who got kind of mystical on me about this in that Charity Dean, she was the only one who's actually stopping disease on the ground. And she found that she had to kind of use it, that she had to smell it. I mean, it was like, it was like jungle instincts with her. And she, I'll tell you a story that sent a chill down my spine. It was not, not long after I met her. I had been interviewing her some, and she mentioned to me, I don't know why, that every year she made her New Year's resolutions, but she made them on her birthday, which was December the 20th. And she scribbled them down on the back of her grandmother's photograph, her dead grandmother who she adored. And one day, sometime after we had met, I said, I think to get to know you better, it would really help me if you just let me wander around your house a bit. Because there were a lot of like very personal touches in the house. And she went out back with her kids and she left me to wander the house. I get to her bedroom and her grandmother's photograph is beside her bed. And I think she said I could look at anything. So I pull it off the wall and it's got all her New Year's resolutions or birthday resolutions going back for like 12 years. They are all of the sort that I make, like learn Spanish or or like go to Africa or they're all res- they're all kind of like what you're going to do until 2019. And on December the 20th, 2019, her first resolution is something very personal. And number two, it says, it has started. And now this is, this, this is before anybody would have known that there was a, a virus in Wuhan. And she, this is a woman who's been waiting her whole life for the pandemic. There's nothing like that on anywhere on this. And I call her up. I said, I said, like, what is this? And she said, yeah, yeah, I had this vision in my head of this giant tsunami washing over America. And I, I thought something's coming now. I don't know what it is. I'm on red alert. And she'd written this down. And I thought, you know, I can't explain it. She couldn't explain it. She didn't make a big deal of it, but it was sort of like you, sometimes when you're an expert in something, when you do something so often, you don't know why you know what you know. And something had bothered her. And it was that instinct she said she'd learned to trust because if she didn't trust it, she didn't have a tool for dealing with disease because you need that instinct. That is freaky, but maybe not as freaky, but also freaky is an interview that you gave to The Guardian in December of 2019, Michael. And you say, for people to suddenly start to value what good government does, I think there will have to be something that threatens a lot of people at once. The problem with a wildfire in California or a hurricane in Florida is that for most people, it is happening to someone else. I think a pandemic might do it, something that could affect millions of people indiscriminately and from which you could not insulate yourself, even if you were rich. I think that might do it. Okay. (laughs) That was in December of 2019. Yeah, Yeah, but I didn't know anything. So it's it's um, 
I, Charity's performance is more impressive than mine. I would say, but I would say this in my, I'll, I want to like parse that a little bit because here's what I was thinking and how different it is from what happened. It wasn't, it's not true that you couldn't insulate yourself from this. Rich people have been able to insulate themselves from this. There've been a few exceptions, but the, the price has fallen very, the cost has fallen very unevenly on the society. So that my pandemic is very different from the pandemic of a, um, a migrant worker in California and, uh, or so, someone who can't afford not to work from home. And so the politics of it weren't what I thought it was going to be. It, because enough people could escape and tell a story about how it's a hoax, it's not really that serious, all that stuff, as 600,000 Americans die, the biff that it gave to the society wasn't quite as direct as I imagined it would be. However, I do think that is what's happening. I think that Bi- the Biden is being able to get, will get away with stuff. There's more full-throated like defense of government going on now than it, than than ever happened in the Obama administration, and because you, I think that there's the, there's more of a market for the for the idea. Like, yeah, we screwed up. We screwed up because our government was screwed up. Enough people see that that it's it's had some effect. So it, I, I was wrong that a pandemic was completely going to completely fix this. A pandemic had a slightly different effect than I thought, but in that direction. Did any of these scientists try to cut through the government bureaucracy and sound the alarm since they're the people you wish were in charge when this all was happening? And what happened to them when they tried? Oh, my God. Well, let's start with Carter Mesher, since he wrote the pandemic plan that the White House neglected. So the beginning of the Trump administration, there were some characters you would not have expected to be there because they had associations with previous administrations. I guess there were so many jobs to fill that some people slipped through. And one of them was Tom Bossert, who had been on the been on in national security in the Bush administration. And he had watched Carter Mesher and his partner in crime, Richard Hatchett, cook up this plan and was so in awe of him that when he got there in 2017, one of his first calls was to them and say, I want to badge you into the White House right now, because if there's a pandemic, you guys are coming to run it. Now, when John Bolton was brought into the Trump White House, he fired Bossert. And at that moment, the actual link with past knowledge was severed. However, everybody, the people, there are people in the know, like Tony Fauci, know who Carter Mesher is. And Carter started writing these emails. They, they called them the Red Dawn emails that had a bigger and bigger following. And it was read, I mean, you know, it was read by the Surgeon General. It was read by people in the FDA. It was read by people in the CDC. And he knew that. And so he was trying with that, use that bullhorn to get them to do stuff. So, but we're crazy doing it. I mean, he couldn't believe Carter is a hard person to upset. He couldn't believe how long it took for them to acknowledge there was any kind of threat. But so, yes, it, he tried. He got the CDC itself, even though he lives in Atlanta, didn't want to see him in the flesh. Um, uh, second person, Charity Dean, number two in the state of California. She sees what Carter sees, mid-January, this thing, but she's primed, it has started, uh, that this thing in Wuhan is, um, this is serious. You don't weld people inside their homes to die if, you're, if you've got a mild outbreak. And, um, and she started to try to sound the alarm. Her boss uh, read her the riot act, said you're not allowed to use the word pandemic. 
you're scaring people. You're not allowed to do that exponential math on the whiteboard showing that 20 million in California are going to get infected unless we mitigate this thing. She was shut down. She was told, go in your box and stay there. You're not welcome at any meetings on the subject uh, for two and something months. So she got shut down. Joe DeRisi is in a slightly different position. He's at a nonprofit. He's running the Chan Zuckerberg Biohub, which is a couple of, an enterprise that was funded with Mark Zuckerberg's money, but when his wife's, his wife was a pediatrician, it was her interest to try to eliminate disease by the end of the 21st century. He's got resources. He, to his shock, realizes that, my God, we're not going to even have a test to do in the, in the United States. He turns the biohub into, into the fastest, biggest COVID testing lab in this area, maybe in the country at one point, and starts to try to give away free, free COVID testing and finds incredibly that as starved as we are of COVID testing, that the system is not equipped to take free stuff, to take his help. So local public health officers say, oh, we don't have test tubes or swabs to administer the test. He provides them with that. We don't have fax machines to receive, receive the results. He provides them with that. I mean, that over and over, he's got to resource these public institutions in order to get, sort of receive his help. And Joe, who had never heard of the public, I mean, he heard of it, but he didn't know anything about the public health system until he starts to try to help it, sees just how ossified, how corroded, how inept and incapable the system is, even though it's filled with like people he admires, they just don't have the tools. Um, so each of them, I mean, you just add, the question you just asked me got to the heart of the story of why, what interested me about the story. I have these extraordinary characters trying to, having to do extraordinary things because the system that should have taken care of it was broken. And the, the way they flounder about and try to, try to operate inside the broken system is sort of a, a portrait of the system. And it's the system that is the end game in the story. It's like, we can't have this. Like we, We're not gonna survive if our systems look like this. And these people are telling us how, how, how it looks. And so what's the solution? I know Dr. Fauci told me we're living in an age of pandemics. Um, and, and I think you can talk about any existential threat, not just a, a coronavirus, but anything that the, the current systems or structure of government is not capable of handling. So do you think there were real lessons learned from this? Will things change or are you fearful that it will remain as ossified as ever? I actually am pretty hopeful. Uh, and I'm pretty hopeful because even though this country has this bizarre movement to declare the whole thing a hoax, enough people's lives have been disrupted and touched. And there's enough evidence from outside of America just how awful it could be. But doesn't it freak you out, Michael, that like 50% of Republican men refuse to be vaccinated? I mean, it's so yeah. crazy. Yeah, no, we're, we are... We're a byproduct of a long period of basic prosperity and peace, that we're, we have the luxury of being idiots, that we won't survive if we're that way. And I think that the mo more existential the risk, the quicker the society will respond and fix itself. I think we have, like, I guess, I guess what I think of the, about the country, it has a bizarre ability to bounce in all kinds of directions and change. It's a very changeable society. It's a young society in a way. Uh, and so, as much weirdness as there is now, I could see it 
bouncing in a complete different direction. Yes, we'll have always have some people who won't get vaccinated, but I'm not terrified for our future. I actually think I, these people, you know, this is how I feel. Here's an analogy that, that, that describes how I feel. We had this team that just we had a catastrophic season. We had all these resources and we just stuck it up. We lost all our games. You ask me to go in and evaluate the situation as maybe a person who might be the next coach. If I walked in and I thought, wow, this team does suck. I, I, I don't want to be, a, I don't want to coach this team. There's a reason they lost all these games. You know, I wouldn't take the job, but I walk into this team and I write about the team and I see such talent. It's like, this is an incredibly talented team. This is like the most talented team. It's like giving me the golden state warriors from three years ago. And somehow they lost, used to have, having to lose all these games. Yeah. I'll take this job. I can fix this because talent that it's hard to, you know, you know, you got the talent. It just needs to be organized. So the fact that we have these resources, and I don't mean just material resources, these inner resources, I think is very hopeful. A huge thank you to Michael Lewis and to Dr. Joe DeRisi of the University of California, San Francisco, and the Chan Zuckerberg Biohub. Michael's new book is called The Premonition, A Pandemic Story, and it's out now. Next Question with Katie Couric is a production of iHeartMedia and Katie Couric Media. The executive producers are me, Katie Couric, and Courtney Litz. The supervising producer is Lauren Hansen, associate producers Derek Clements, Adriana Fazio, and Emily Pinto. The show is edited and mixed by Derek Clements. For more information about today's episode or to sign up for my morning newsletter, Wake Up Call, go to katiecouric.com. You can also find me at Katie Couric on Instagram and all my social media channels. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. <laughs> 